Hello, Revelers. So, second episode in one week. This podcast is a lot about how things happen in our life, how the universe makes things happen. And back in October-ish, some point, I had two people come to me and say, hey, you should interview these authors I know. And so that happened. You never know what the universe is going to bring you. So this is the second of the authors. And Kurgan, Kurgan Edward Stout, that is, is a local to my neck of the woods author. He lives in Evergreen, which is the next town over from me. And I have not met him, but it is super cool that I got to know him via the referral from another friend. So thank you to Lisa Colorado. And I hope that you all enjoy learning about Kurgan and his work and his writing. And I really encourage you to get his memoir. And he will teach you a lot about publishing, self-publishing. You'll find out a lot of inner stuff about the book world and how it works. And if you ever have thought about self-publishing, you'll definitely want to listen and maybe contact him. Take heed his information. So here we go. Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Drabble and today I am interviewing someone I don't know but I feel like I know because I read his semi-fictional memoir and his name is Kurgan Edward Stout. Hey how are you? I am okay. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. So as you know, because you've listened to enough other episodes, we always start with how we know each other and we don't. Right. So let's start with how we got introduced to each other. We were introduced by a friend on Facebook. As you mentioned, I have a book that I've written and I was asking people, you know, how to get the word out. And they said, well, to talk to you, even though your podcast is a lot about a lot more things than just interest in my book. But Definitely, it seemed like a good fit uh, because I love a lot of the topics that you talk about on your show. And that was Lisa. She has many names, but right. I think she officially goes back to Colorado. Now, how do you know her? We got connected shortly after. We've been in, um, we live here in Evergreen, just outside of Denver. And we met her pretty early on when we moved to Evergreen. Um, my husband, Russ, and I were looking for ways to meet kind of like-minded people and she and I connected on Facebook somehow. And one of the things we did to meet people when we first moved here is we started throwing evergreen nice people mixers. So the nice just stands for uh, nurturing, inquisitive, what was the same? Compassion and eco-friendly or environmentally conscious. So we were trying to find people who shared some of the same values that we shared. And so we threw in one of our first ones after the 2016 election, when uh, there were a lot of people who were disappointed with the results as we were. And so it was a great way to just kind of meet and connect. And so we met Lisa there. And so we've been friendly ever since. I love that you came up with that idea about meeting people and meeting nice people. Do you remember the conversations that you and Russ had about starting that and how that kind of bubbled up in your head and heart to do that? You know, we were very disillusioned is the not even strong enough word after the 2016 election. Uh, we kind of felt like our values had been squat, stepped on. And a lot of things that were important to us 
were not were were kind of we we felt let down by the election as many people do today, and we were trying to find a way to heal. And we kept talking to people, and everyone was very frustrated. And we thought, you know, we need to kind of come together and do something that's really positive and community oriented. And so we started inviting people who we knew had similar mindsets. And we also cast the net even wider and invited people who we'd only met virtually and just said, you know, let's all come together. And um, it wasn't necessarily a political gathering and it was purely social, but we had, when people walked in, we had um, name tags and you were supposed to put on your name tag, in addition to your name, something that you felt passionate about so that as you're circulating and, and meeting new people, there was something people could say, oh, well, you love cats or you love, you know, you're concerned about climate change or whatever. So it was a great kind of mixer opportunity. And it really did. People came up to us and said, you know, oh, my God, this is just what I needed right now at this point in time, because it really was healing. And um, it was also helpful, you know, just to meet, you know, for us to meet other people in the area as well. Yeah, I hope that one day you can have those again, because I would love to come. Yes. You know, that's one been one of the biggest frustrations, I think, for, well, for everyone, just as this Zoom is great, but you can't hug someone via Zoom. And so, you know, we have these friendships that, you know, they've taken on different levels and different layers because we don't even have that ability to hug, you know, when you see someone. And I've, I've missed that. And so I'm really hopeful that at some point soon we can gather and you know, and just enjoy each other's company without all the protocols that we have to follow right now. Yeah. And just for the record, we are recording this on the day that Pfizer has come out with their supposed 90% effective vaccine for COVID. So cross your fingers. Yes, exactly. So just to complete the whole circle, I love the details of how things happen, you know, and lots of times we don't pay attention to how things happen and why and the it's funny because I don't exactly remember how I met Lisa. It must have been at a conifer chamber event. We would often uh, volunteer to work at an event and just, you know, maybe if the line's short, we get to talking or whatever. But I haven't been in the chamber for a while, but she is one of the few people that I have stayed in touch with and I talk to really regularly. And I used to get to see her a lot more before she moved to Buena Vista, but Anyway, hopefully I'll see her soon. But out of the blue, you know, she doesn't tell me anything like, hey, I've been listening to your podcast and telling people about nothing. (laughs) And all of a sudden she says, hey, I think I've got someone that you should interview. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because I was wondering at what point is it going to go from moving away from people that I know to friends of friends or strangers entirely or whatever. And that week that she, sent me that email, I heard from another friend. So it was like, it's all kind of happening at once, you know? Mm-hmm. I love how these things happen. So as you know, we will, I will ask you questions and hopefully pry out details about how things happen. Sure. So, cause I, you know, people want to hear your story and what brought you to being an author and all that, but don't shy away from the fun, inexplicable details. Definitely. So where do you want to start? Um, you know, I, I guess, um, 
I think it's important for people to kind of know what makes me me. And to really understand that, you'd have to go back to, you know, my early childhood being in kindergarten and realizing that I was gay. Uh, even then, even if I didn't have the words to put to it, I just knew I, I, we were doing this uh, theatrical production of Three Little Pigs, which was absolutely stunning. And I remember falling in love with the kid who played the straw seller. And he just had this beautiful smile. And I just, I knew how I felt about him and it felt entirely right to me. And that really helped me, even though I didn't come out until later, it kind of formed the basis to know that these feelings I had were genuine and natural. And so even though later I'd hear negative things about gay people, I really didn't believe much of it. Some of it's, you know, hard to avoid, but it really didn't have the impact on on me that it does for a lot of gay people because I just knew who I am is exactly who I'm supposed to be. And I think that piece of me, although it's just one piece, really has fueled a lot of my life because it really turned me into an activist and an advocate, both for LGBT folks, but also, you know, when I see something that doesn't sit right with me, I have no issue tackling it and trying to uh, make the world better every way I can. And so I think, you know, when, when I got to be a teenager and started hearing all those negative things that people say about gay people, not only did I not believe them, but it made me want to speak up and start telling my truth. And so I used to live, I grew up in Southern California. And in my late teens, I remember there was some activist, his name was Lyndon LaRouche, and he was just one of these homophobic, awful people. And when AIDS came along, he was trying to quarantine gay people and just incredibly extreme behavior. And so as early as I can remember, I've been, you know, fighting whoever that person is at that point in time who's trying to um, set back LGBT rights or you know, push us into the closet or what have you. I think that that fighting spirit is really key to who I am and fuels pretty much everything I do, whether it's my writing to just my life as a dad. My, my husband, Russ, and I have two kids and who are both African-American and we're two white guys. So I think, you know, adding in that peace and justice and wanting equality for all people is just something that's at my core. I think that's, we're kindred spirits in that way. And, and, and Lisa recognized that. So for those who are listening, who are hearing this and thinking, oh, great, another Southern California person, because most of the people who I've had on have at some point lived in Southern California, particularly San Diego, but you're not San Diego. You are from where? I grew up in Orange County and I lived in LA for years working in entertainment and I've been here in Evergreen for five years now. Five years. So what a lot of people don't know about Orange County is that it's the whitest, most Republican, one of the places in the whole country, but definitely in California too. So what was it like for you being who you are Mm -hmm. in that environment? You know, that's a great question. I think, you know, when I was younger, just coming out to myself and uh, I came out to my parents when I was 19, my dad, my dad and his business partner were the campaign treasurers for Governor George Duke Majan 
who is a Republican governor at the time. And so they're, you know, very conservative people. Uh, my parents are both, my mom just passed fairly recently, but they're both incredibly religious people. So I grew up in a situation where, you know, religion and conservative politics was all around me. And so I think, you know, I had to tread carefully. I really came out to myself and my friends. Well, I'd always known I was gay, but I uh, came out to my friends when I was about 17. So starting to have those kind of conversations and inching out to my parents because I knew they were not going to take it well and they didn't initially. You know, my mom wanted to send me to conversion camps and sent me to a Christian counselor. And remarkably, the, the Christian counselor said to my mom, you know, your son is happy who he is. And I can't change that. I can't change him into straight. And, you know, I think you need to look at yourself and your issues and see if you can just come to a place where you love and accept him. And that was pretty remarkable for a Christian counselor back in the day, to be able to say that to my mom. Yeah, I want to clone that guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not that it, his <laughs> words really had any impact with my mom. We, we tussled for years about my sexuality and she, because of being conservative in Orange County and just their their lives that they have led, they really didn't want me to tell people. They wanted to keep it a secret from their friends and our extended family and, you know, that kind of stuff, which at some point I hit a wall with them and just decided I needed to be myself in all areas of my life. And, you know, that created some friction. But, you know, at some point for me, saving up for myself was was an important thing to do. Yeah. So I have never interviewed someone after just reading their book and that's in general, and then particularly not a memoir. And so as I want to dig into the details, I also don't want to give away a part of the book that you're like, oh no, they need to read that, you know? <laughs> so if, if I do venture into too far that where you just want to say, read the book, you know, just let me know oh, sure. because I, I don't know exactly that level of detail that I want versus giving away too much. So we'll have to figure that out. So were you always interested in reading and writing and stuff when you were growing up? Um, I know that theater was big for you. Yes, theater was huge. I, I thought it was going to be some Academy Award winning actor. And I practiced my acceptance speech and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid. And then when I got a little older, I realized that I was a terrible actor. Hmm. And, you know, that realization kind of put me on a different path. I never envisioned being a writer, although I've always written in some way or another. But, you know, it, I'm just pretty shocked that this is my, my life these days, both with the books that I put out and uh, my day job. I work in marketing, uh, doing a lot of writing for clients and social media and things like that. And it, I never would have thought that this would have been my life. My parents, when I was in high school, I kept telling them that I wanted to be an actor and they kept trying to dissuade me and telling me, you know, you can't go to college to be an actor. That's a waste of money, blah, 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 blah. And they hooked me up with a career counselor who gave me a battery of tests and decided that I would make an excellent TV anchor man. Now, I have no interest in journalism, really. I mean, I like to read and I like to watch the news, but, um, you know, being a journalist was never something that I thought I would have wanted. But my parents really started pushing me in that direction. And I even flew out to a, a renowned journalism school and 
while I was there giving a tour, the woman who was escorting me, we ran smack into Sam Donaldson with his awful toupee. And um, the woman said, oh, well, Kurgan has always been a fan of yours. And I looked at her and I'm thinking, well, first of all, you don't even know me. We just met like this weekend as you're giving me a tour. And I'm not a fan of Sam Donaldson. Not that I have anything against him, but you know, it, it was a wake-up call for me. Like, I am being put in this trajectory for this life that I do not want. So I really went back to my parents and said, you know, I really want to focus on theater. And uh, luckily, they allowed me to do that. I went to UCLA and got my uh, degree in theater. And that's when I started writing. Because at UCLA, one of the things that they do is even if you want to be an actor, for, for example, in the theater department, you have to take costuming classes and makeup classes and scenic design classes and writing classes and directing. You have to learn how to do it all. And so I was exposed to a lot of writing, you know, playwrights and, and everything from Russian theater to, gosh, some avant-garde things. And it really opened up my eyes to what writing could be. And at the same time, I was working with a, a playwright. Um, I was directing several of his plays and he has he was this young prodigy and he has this really amazing way with dialogue. It's, it's very staccato and sharp. And he's basically a poet with fast flying dialogue and working with him. I remember thinking, wow, I could never be a writer because his talent was so specific and so very part of who he is. And I think I thought I would have to somehow come up with my own, style that was going to make me different and unique and I just it seemed like too big of a mountain to climb and but luckily at some point you know later in my life I started writing really for me and I think I found more of my voice as I had some life experiences that you know challenged me and opened me up as a human being and you know I would not have been a very effective writer I wrote a lot of things in my 20s that I'm sure looking back now would be terrible. But, you know, once I kind of broke through some of my own uh, issues, emotional issues, I was really a jerk when I was younger, uh, very self-centered and um, cynical. And I put people down to kind of make myself feel like I was, you know, high and mighty. And um, it was really a way, you know, to make sure that people didn't get too close to me to see how flawed I was. And once I kind of got through all of that, that's when my writing really began to work for me. So I would love to hear more about you figuring out that you're a jerk <laughs> and finding your voice and that journey that you went on to bring you to who you are. Yeah. You know, I think in my 20s, I was really, I was putting on an act and I think, you know, I wanted to be the most attractive, well-dressed person, the wittiest person in the room. And, you know, I spent probably way too much effort trying to do that, you know, working on the physical exterior instead of really looking at who I was as a person. And I remember at some point I had a party at my house once and this guy who I didn't know was going around and telling people that he was my brother which I thought was odd, but I guess he was getting some kind of kick out of it. And somebody said to him, well, you know, you're nothing like Kurgan. You're so down to earth and personable. Oh. And I remember hearing this and going, okay. <laughs> um, here I thought I was being, you know, witty and 
cat's pajamas and realizing just how some other people were viewing me, which, you know, was incredibly valid. I just had never really thought of myself that way before. So I knew I had some learning to do. I luckily found this amazing therapist who I saw for several years and she really got me starting to look at my life more holistically. And I realized that I was really focused solely on myself. So I started trying to find um, a sense of community. I started volunteering at AIDS Project Los Angeles because I knew not only were you know my people in my community dying, but I knew I needed to do something outside of myself, put myself in service of others, that that was going to be key to breaking through some of these facade, this facade that I built up. And that really was the pivotal, not only my, my time there, I ran an HIV education program trying to keep HIV negative men negative, but also, you know, I had friends die during my time there. I uh, had a partner who had, I met him at AIDS Project Los Angeles. He was working there as well. And he had a technical AIDS diagnosis at the time, which is 200 or less T cells and an opportunistic infection. And at the time, there were no drugs. There were no, nothing really. It was definitely a death sentence. And, um, you know, we fell in love. And I thought, okay, I don't know that I can do this. But there was a part of me that said, you have to do this. You have to take this moment. This is being offered to you. This is going to be transformative. It's going to be incredibly challenging. And you're probably going to be tested beyond belief, but you need to do this. We were together for two years and then he died and I was his caregiver. And that experience of really giving myself over to another and facing my darker emotions. And I would have never thought I could have the 20 year old version of myself would have been shocked to see the 30 something year old version of myself being a caregiver to somebody with AIDS and the, the kind of horrific things you have to do as a caregiver sometimes. So I think, you know, without that experience and then the grief process and kind of learning who I was as a result of everything that I faced, that really was probably the most transformative experience of my life. And Without it, I wouldn't be a very good writer. I wouldn't be a good father or a good human being. So I think it really gave me layers. Didn't give them to me. They were always there, but it really uncovered who I was at my core and helped me turn into somebody that I'm, I'm proud to be today. Yeah, I listening to you and then, of course, reading your book, it did, it did seem like a huge leap of faith or maybe not that, I'm not sure what it was that took you from this, what's the word I want? You were very career motivated. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. You're trying to climb that entertainment in LA ladder, which everybody knows something about, you know, has heard about how cutthroat and wicked it is. And so, you know, you're going through that and all of a sudden there's not just this volunteerism, but boom, meeting and falling in love and having to care for someone in such a fast, not even turnaround, twist of events, shall we say. Yeah. And it was just staggering to me to, to watch that. I, I guess as the reader, I wasn't thinking, wow, watch this guy grow. 
I wasn't thinking that, but I was like, oh, okay, now he's doing that. Yeah. Now he's going to do this. And, and it was written with such a deaf touch that it wasn't maudlin or melodramatic. It wasn't woe is me. It wasn't flippant. It was just the right balance. And I don't know how you did that, but well done. Well, thank you. You know, it's one of the, the benefits of time is really to be able to process. And obviously at the time it was happening, part of me was not thinking, oh, this is going to be a life-changing event. And, you know, it was there was nothing altruistic about it necessarily. I knew I was going to be changed. I knew I'd be challenged. But the bottom line for me was, um, you know, this is a person who, you know, I'd had relationships before, but it was like, I felt like this is my first adult relationship, you know, and being in love was really the motivating factor at the time. You know, everything else, I was aware of what I was doing, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't driven by like, oh my God, I need to change. And so I'm going to do this. But looking back now, I can, I can see how each step led me to who I am today. So at what point did you decide, okay, now I'm going to start writing things down because there's no way you remember all that. Like, were you journaling the whole time? I journaled on and on and off. You know, what's funny is, you know, when I went to write the memoir and I'd been thinking about how to do it, and, you know, as you said, I, like, I didn't want it to be a woe is me. You know, so many memoirs are, look at this terrible thing and how I'm a survivor. And I, I didn't want it to be that necessarily. But when I was younger, I would journal sometimes. One of the best things I ever did was um, right after I came out to my parents, I wrote a letter to a friend. And because I was a theater major, I did it. I wrote it as, a, as almost a script, just the dialogue, everything that was said the night that I came out to my parents. And I Xeroxed that letter for some reason, which I don't typically do, and hung on to it. And so when I was going, you know, writing the memoir, I went through all of my papers just to refresh my memory. And, you know, I stumbled on this coming out script, which how lucky <laughs> that I may have been able to, do, you know, use that. In, in the book. And, you know, I found letters that I've written to, to all those jumping ahead of myself, but I've written letters to people that are incorporated into the book. So it's, it's very much some of the things are written current day. And some of these things actually came from years ago. So it was just a nice symmetry to be able to find these, these pieces, but a lot of it is, is from memory. And then there's notes and all kinds of things in there. And this is your second book, right? This is actually my third. I wrote, you know, you were asking about the writing thing. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, as I mentioned, when I was younger and working in entertainment, I wrote several screenplays thinking I was going to be a screenwriter and nothing ever got sold, even though my agent kept telling me that they would sell and I'd be, you know, a millionaire. So much for that. But um, after my partner Shane died, one day I was just cleaning house and this line popped into my head and I didn't know who was speaking. I didn't know what it meant. It just felt important. Like you need to write this down. And so I wrote down the line and eventually that line became the first line in my novel, which is the first book I've, I wrote. So it really, that book was inspired by my partner, Shane. So it has a lot of him in it, even though it's entirely fictional, but it's about a guy who is, dying of AIDS and 
the character in the book has the exact same thing that Shane got. Shane got a disease called progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is called PML for short. And it's a lesion on the brain that grows and it attacks the motor skills. So Shane, you know, had been healthy for a while and then he got this disease PML and he started veering off course when he was walking, slurring his words. He'd be driving and he'd, you know, hit the brakes like either too soon or too late. And we'd like roll into a crosswalk or what have you. And within a matter of weeks, he could no longer communicate. And we were doing the squeeze my finger or bat your eye, yeah. your eyes once for yes and twice for no. But at some point that was gone. That ability was gone. And that disease kind of took a role in the book because the guy who is telling this story, his life story, he has PML and he goes to this place where he's in his head and he can't communicate. And the thing about PML that's so awful in a way is you're still able to listen and process everything that's being said around you. You can't respond. And I just thought how awful that would be especially if you had regrets in your life to get to a point where you know you're dying and you can't make peace. So the novel really kind of is about a character who's trying to make peace, but has this disease and, and it peels back the, each of the three acts of the novel kind of peel back the layers until you really see what happened in his teens and what ha- what made him kind of a shitty person. You know, you see why he was so challenging and why he had the regrets he had, but did it in a very fictional way. So that was my first book. And my second book is a collection of short stories that are all holiday themed, but even though they're set around holidays, they're much more going back to the being an act- activist. They're really about people at a crossroads in their life where they have to make some kind of decision. And it could be a big decision, could be a little decision, but those decisions are really going to impact who they become. And so it's really about these life moments that we all face. Obviously, you want to, when you're faced with a decision, you want to choose correctly. So the short stories are uh, called Give It's Not Yet Again. And, and then this is my, my uh, memoir is my third book. And you're not self-publishing, right? You decide to make your own publishing house. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I, when I decided to do this with my first book, I'll, I was hoping to go the traditional route and find a publisher and all that kind of stuff. You know, selling an AIDS novel is not the easiest of things. And I got this, you know, I got rejected many times. But finally, I got this rejection letter from this woman who is the agent for Michael Cunningham, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And she goes, I read your book. I love the writing. It's fresh and contemporary. I think it's great. I just don't have a clue as to where I would sell it. And I thought, okay, well, if you're one of the best agents in the world and you're telling me you don't know where to sell it and I want to get this out there, then I'm going to have to do it myself. And, you know, a lot of people who are self-published just go through Amazon and create space and what have you. But I happened to learn about this guy named Aaron Shepard who had a book out at the time about a different way to to self-publish. So basically, you form your own company, your own imprint. You make a deal with the same publishing house called Lightning Source that publishes all of Amazon's books. So it's exactly the same kind of quality book that you're getting, 
But with Amazon, you're basically handing over a huge chunk of money to them as a middleman. And so by doing this myself, I make a lot more per book than if I went the traditional self-publishing way. Well, as you know, I'm a big activist advocate too. And anytime we can take money away from Amazon, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they've become so dominant now. And one of my, I, I've been in the process of recording a audio version of my memoir and even that to get it out into the, you know, the world, you have to go through an Amazon owned company. I mean, to get it to be, you know, not only the process of recording an audio book and uploading your files and everything, but it's all an Amazon company. And I'm just like, boy, <laughs> I would have preferred to go any other route, but that's really the only game in town. So it's a little frustrating. And that, yep. that's the issue. It is a fucking monopoly, world dominating every area, avenue. Like, I mean, we all sit there and read articles on our phone, right? I don't remember the last one that I was looking at because I got so angry. Oh, I remember it was about how to properly stay warm outside in the winter, like what the Scandinavians do. You know, they don't just wear like the big down jackets or like the new cool thin, but I forget what that material is. They don't just wear that. They wear like a wool sweater underneath those jackets. And then they go on to explain, you know, not just why the wool sweaters work and show you some cool pictures of them, but there's always links to Amazon for the sweaters. And it's like, you can get them other places. <laughs> you can get them from the people who make them directly without having to go to those fuckers. Yep. So yeah, yep. I, I went click, not looking at that article anymore. It's like, they don't even try. Yeah. They don't even try yeah. to, to highlight. And you know, like they're talking about the Aran sweater, which is A-R-A-N. It's from the little Aran islands that are part of Ireland. It's like, Aaron, that's been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. There are still, you know, these regional little farmers and stuff making these sweaters, but no, we have to promote Amazon. So anyway, <laughs> that's one of my hobby horses. So um, you get to make your own company and you called it. Oh my God, I'm not wearing my reading glasses. Tell me what it says. <laughs> it's, called, it's called Circumspect Press. So all three books have been through my own company and uh, hopefully... We'll see about the next one. But, you know, it's definitely a challenge when you're doing anything your own. It's been amazing in some respects. I'm now 55. And when I did my novel, it was more like, well, early 40s. And to be 40 something and to be learning how to create my own website and to do uh, video, create videos to promote the book, you know, with, with review quotes and tapping into all the different, you know, book blogs and everything. You're trying to get the word out, just becoming a marketer. I mean, there's so many things that I've learned as a result that is great because you kind of get stuck in your ways. But at the same time, it is doing anything by yourself is, is a challenge and, and the marketing is the hardest part. I'm a marketing in my, in my day job and it's still challenging. So with the theme of all these different threads coming together in your life, and you have said a couple of times that, you know, young you would not be able to even envision this life. So let's think about the thread of how you got here and who helped you along the way and, and all that stuff. You know, what sort of stands out as the universe at play in your life? 
Well, I think, like I said, the relationship with my family, which has been problematic at times, I mean, that's that formative experience with them is what put me on my path. And, and then luckily having some supportive friends uh, in high school and college. And then that relationship with Shane was really extraordinary. One relationship that uh, is what the entire memoir is titled, I had a terrible relationship over 20 years ago now with somebody who I thought was just the most amazing person in the world. This guy who I call Eyes in the book, my best friends who would actually, they were actually friends with him first. It's this uh, straight couple and, and the guy, Bob, said, you know, this is after all the truths come out. But he said, you know, if anyone had ever asked me who the most moral and ethical person I know is, it would be Eyes. And Eyes turned out to be the least moral, ethical person in the world. And we adopted a son together, my oldest son, Mason. And when Mason was a year and a half, that entire fantasy world, the uh, life that we were living came crashing down when I found out all kinds of horrible things about him. And he then threatens to, well, when I found out everything I found out, I went to an attorney to make sure that I had full rights to my son because I was a stay-at-home dad and my my now ex was the breadwinner and insurance was under him. And we, because two guys could not adopt at the time, my ex adopted Mason and I was going through what's called a second parent adoption. And when I found out all these things I found out, I went to an attorney and I was told that if you confront eyes about everything you've just found out, he could pull Mason from you. You could never see your son again. So they advised that I not confront him about all the things that I'd found out. So for months, I had to kind of live this this fake kind of life where I was playing dutiful spouse and keeping my mouth shut, even though I learned so many horrific things. And, uh, you know, I didn't even want to be, I wanted so out of that relationship. And yet I had to play a role, which is where my acting, my bad acting talents came in actually pretty handy. I totally thought about that and thought you deserve an Oscar for what you went through. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it, without going into all the details, you know, I eventually got the rights to my son, Mason, and I've been the primary caregiver for him. He's now, well, he's close to be, being um, 21, which is amazing. When I think about those threads, for better or worse, eyes is a major thread. Not only, you know, without without meeting him and falling in love with him and building a home together, we would have never adopted Mason. Now, I may have gone on to adopt some other kid in another relationship, but Mason is one of the most special people in the world to me. So to think that he wouldn't have been here, you know, I do owe eyes kind of a, a debt of gratitude for that. And even though we didn't have any contact for, for the last several years, but for many years, he was a thorn in my side, constantly doing everything he could to kind of fight me on parenting Mason. So we had many court battles and all that kind of stuff. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, I owe him a debt of gratitude. It took me a long time to be able to say that, to even formulate that, but um, definitely an important thread, even though it wasn't always pleasant. And then, you know, now, luckily for the last 18 years, my hubby Russ, we've, we fell in love, we adopted another son. So we've got two amazing boys. And so, you know, those, those threads are the ones that I 
cherish more than anything. But, you know, there's a lot of threads that really have led me to this point in my life. Was waiting for Mason to be 18 or older part of your thought process in why now for the memoir? Yeah, that was a huge part. Not only did I want to respect his privacy, you know, I wanted him to be able to read the book and to sign off on it. Firstly, just because it's he's a big part of it. And I, I wanted him to know my side of the story and to understand everything that we went through together. That he needed some kind of maturity level to be able to deal with all that. And I tell my whole life story in there. So there's people I had sex with and things like that. It's like, you know, <laughs> now that he's over 18, he's more open to hearing that, you know, he would have been mortified if he'd been younger. But I also wanted to, I, I told him when he read the book, uh, he actually, he told me he read it twice. The first time he was just looking through, trying to find his name. <laughs> and um, the second, the second time he was really reading the entire thing. And um, I told him, I said, you know, I, I'm happy to use a pseudonym for you if, uh, you know, you don't feel comfortable with this. And he said, no, I'm totally fine with it. And I, I said, well, are there any questions you want to ask me about my life or the things that we went through together that you may not even recall? But I think he appreciated, you know, the opportunity to read it. And happily, he had no changes and he was fine using his name. And so, yeah, definitely the 18 had it, it was definitely a factor in waiting to tell this. And at the same time, I think the relationship with my ex ended the minute Mason graduated high school. So we had no more, there were no other opportunities for us to interact. So that was a nice way to kind of bring, bring some closure to that, you know, waiting for that. I didn't want to ever be sued again, because at one point when we moved to Colorado, my ex was unhappy with the move and decided to sue us for full custody of Mason. So we had a huge court battle and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and debts, and it was incredibly challenging. So we wanted to get to a point where there was no ties there anymore. Yeah, I thought that when I was piecing it together with the timeline, I went, oh, okay, yes, he's graduated from high school, so he's done, he's of age, he can legally make his own decisions. Okay, cool. As a person who has a child from a former marriage and had to walk that moving out of state line and getting together for things like weddings and graduations and stuff, I hear you. So Mason's going to graduate this year or next year from college? Well, Mason, he graduated high school a couple of years back. He's actually living in California now. He's in um, going to junior college there, working and just pursuing his dreams. So he's he turns 21 in January. And then our, our youngest is a senior in high school. And uh, so he'll be graduating in May. Okay. So you don't have an upcoming graduation for Mason that you have to deal with the X with. Okay. I got you. No, no, no. Now that's yeah. all over. So I never read any book quite like yours because as you say, it's a fictional memoir. So there's some fiction in it, but it's mostly the memoir. Is that right? You know, it's 99.9% .9 true. There are certain situations where I fictionalize things by using pseudonyms and whatnot. Some of my entertainment stories and things, I didn't want to get sued. So I, I use some pseudonyms uh, telling some of those stories and then other people, you know, like I tell a story about Jack Black, who I cast in his first two shows at UCLA and we're friendly. So I knew he wouldn't come back and sell, sue me, but you know, there's some people who 
are less flatteringly uh, depicted. But by and large, the entire thing is true. There's one thing that is not true. And um, I, I'm not going to tell you what that is. I kind of leave it up to the reader to decide. But I really wanted to, you know, we talked about closure. And uh, there was something in the book that didn't actually happen. But um, I kind of gave myself a little leeway to bring closure to something that was important to me. And you felt it was important for the story, too. It was important for the story. And I think, you know, we were talking about how do you get to a point when you decide to write a memoir and then all the thoughts about how do you want to tell your story? And I wanted to try to tell my story in an entertaining way. I wanted to give my version of life lessons in terms of things that I picked up along the way and make it entertaining. And also, you know, you, you want it to touch the reader on an emotional level. And so all of those things, you know, are really thought out. But what was interesting to me is once I figured out how I wanted to tell my story, everything really just kind of fell into place. You know, not only finding some of those writing that I would, those writings and things like that, but pieces just, I came up with the title. The title of the book is called Never Turn Your Back on the Tide or How I Married a Lying, Psychopathic, Wannabe Murderer and Kind of Lived to Tell. And I came up with Never Turn Your Back on the Tide before I started writing the book because my ex, I should have seen it common, but I didn't. And um, that whole idea of don't expect the ocean to be anything other than what it is. It could be give you amazing things, but it has so many uncharted depths and dangers as well. And so this kind of line stuck into my head and I decided to call the book Never Turn Your Back on the Tide. And one of the closing pieces is a letter that I wrote to Mason when he was a baby. And um, there was a chance that I might never see him again because uh, I'd been told that my ex had hired hitmen in the past. So once our relationship went downhill, I had a name of, of somebody that he said has used hitmen, actual hitmen. And so I was actually fearful for my life. And so I wrote my son this letter. And what was fascinating to me is I decided, oh, well, I'll put this letter in the book. And there's a line in the letter that just jumped out at me that I wrote this 20 years ago, and it said something about the ocean's tide. And I thought, wow, okay, I just decided to use this letter, and here's this line that echoes the book's title, which was not something strategic at all. It just happened. It was just one of those nice coincidences that just worked really well. Happy coincidences. That's what this yes. thing's all about. So, you know, you've listened to enough enough episodes, that's the word I want, to know that a lot of people talk about books that have come to them and like done pivotal things in their lives. And as an author, A, I'm sure that, you know, you've had that as a reader. And so I want to give you the opportunity to, you know, share those, but also talk about your influences as, a, as an author. Well, you know, I think for me, when I was younger, I took, uh, you know, classes at UCLA in English. And one of the classes was about queer studies. And so I learned, you know, I read some amazing books by like uh, James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room. There's one called Mrs. Stevens, Here's the Mermaid Singing, which is a lesbian story. And John Ritchie, who wrote City of Night, Felice Picano, who wrote Ambidextrous and several others. So there's several gay authors that really made an impact on me because I think when I came out, what a funny story, but uh, when I was 16, my mom and I went to 
her optometrist and I had an appointment before her. So I went in and once I was done and she went in for her appointment, I said, I'm going to go across the street and wait in this bookstore. And I went across the street and was shocked to see this sign hanging in the back that said gay studies. And I re remember thinking like, who, who are these gays and what are they studying? It was just kind of a shocking <laughs> moment for me. But I went through my whole, my own kind of education where I was reading classics as back when I was 16 and 17 and got the guts to buy the books and then learning more about them in college. And so a lot of those gay authors meant a lot to me because I was really looking for people at the time to ref who reflected similar stories to myself. I wanted to see how these people became who they are. And so the gay memoir, there was a lot of gay fiction in there as well, but the gay memoir was very important to me. I wanted to see myself reflected in, in the books that I was reading. And so that was all very pivotal. I do say think that um, one of my favorite authors ever is Armistead Maupin, who wrote the Tales of the Cities books, which are phenomenal. And I think in terms of an influence, he's probably one of the people I think of because he, there's so many amazing writers who are tell these beautiful poetic craft, these beautiful poetic sentences. And I can't do that. Like I'm, I'm not that patient. I'm not that poetic. And sometimes when I'm reading a book and there's so much of that floral stuff, I don't like it. Like I, I like to dive in and kind of meet people, the characters emotionally and just kind of find myself in the middle of the story. And so I've tried to take that the same approach and, Armistead Maupin is so great about that. I mean, I think in the very first Tales of the City book, he introduces the lead character, Marianne Singleton. And the, it's, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like Marianne checked her mood ring and saw that it was blue. And, you know, it just like tells you exactly who this person is. The fact that she's got a mood ring on and that it's blue and she's in San Francisco, this young single woman, and you just dive right into it. There's not a lot of extra stuff there and so i really try to that directness is something that i've tried to do with my own writing and just tell a story and not get bogged down with the pretty stuff that other people do better than i do so you know i said the i've never read a book quite like yours the vindictive horrible behavior of your ex reminded me of, of a book that if you haven't read this we can just cut this part out have you read half a life I can't think of the author's name right now. It just escaped me. Who, yeah, I'm trying to think who wrote that. I have not read that, but it's been recommended to me. I find it very problematic. It's such a, you know, when the whole gay marriage thing was happening and comedians would try to say things like, yeah, sure, I believe in gay marriage. They have the right to be unhappy just like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much that. It's like, let's talk about bad relationships, bad experiences. I mean, like physically abusive. It's, it's quite dark. I didn't enjoy it that much. Honestly, it was just too, too horrific in some places. And I, when you were talking about that, um, she wasn't the publisher, but oh, Michael Cunningham's agent or whatever she was. I thought, gosh, if half a life can get made, there's no reason why your AIDS book can't get made. Well, you know, I think I think it was just maybe the timing. Things are cyclical in publishing, and I, there are times where people are like, "Oh, we've got to get memoirs are hot right now," and so everyone's buying memoirs. It's like you know, AIDS drama is um, not an easy sell. I will say that I was so grateful for that it ended up being a independent book. 
because with all three of these, I do think it'd be nice to have like a professional editor and somebody out there marketing my books. All that stuff would be nice to have because you catch things later that you're like, how did I miss that? But at the same time, I don't have somebody telling me, well, you can't do it this way or you can't write it this way. It's really about what I, you know, I'm telling the story that I wanted to tell in the way that I wanted to tell it. And that's been really rewarding. And, you know, when I hear from people, I have my first book, uh, it's called Songs for the New Depression. And I have one guy who he's read it at least four times. And, you know, when you have a reader who like, I love this story and your book resonates with me. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's, that makes it all worth it. All the trouble, all the heartache, all the money spent. It's nice to, to know that something resonates with people and, and that it's entirely your creation, good and bad. You're going to take the uh, lumps as well, but that's a nice kind of feeling that, you know, I, to look at what I've accomplished with what I started with is something, even though I'm never going to make a, a lot of money with these things, it just feels good to know that I'm not just somebody who's trudging along in life. I've really tried to do things my way and fighting the good fight is really at the end of the day, makes it all worthwhile. Well, I love that. And you talked about if you found a mistake, can't you just fix it and do a new publishing of it? Yeah, at some point, yes, you can. In fact, um, this memoir that came out, once, like the, the version that's on sale now, has errors corrected that when I was going through, as many times as I've gone through this book and all the different drafts, when I was recording it for the audiobook. I stumbled on things and I thought, oh my God, you know, I had a copy editor who helped me. She didn't find these mistakes. I, as I've never found these mistakes as many times as I've gone through it. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, there was mistakes. Yeah. As soon as you say it out loud, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've luckily I've uploaded new files and things like that. So everything that is printed now, you know, hopefully is correct. But, you know, with my first book, there's a continuity issue, which, this reader pointed I, out. I, what the people aren't going to know when they hear this is I could see you cringing at that continuity issue. It just wrinkles you physically. Yes. <laughs> it, you know, my first book, it, even though it, I made it sound like it was quick writing, it took me 10 years writing it on and off to get the first book out. So when you've spent that kind of time and you've, I made a decision about something that happened in the narrative at a last mo moment and made the change. And I forgot that it tied into something earlier in the book. Um, so you know, it's one of these things where <laughs> luckily, you know, he, he read it four times and pointed it out, but um, hopefully others weren't, are not going to be quite so picky <laughs> or notice it. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating, you know, all these years later to hear about something like that. So obviously we are in COVID times and you can't have traditional sort of book launch parties and things like that. How are you getting the word out? How can we get the word out for you? How do we buy these books without going to Amazon? Yeah, you know, I think for me, one of the, the things that's been fun is I, I came up with a marketing plan for this. And, and before the book came out for the first month, uh, the month before it came out, I started dropping these memes on social media. Some of them were like hashtag in the book. And I kind of tease up something that was actually in the book. And then I had a whole nother series of hashtag not in the book. So, you know, I've had so many amazing stories that just 
for whatever reason, we're not going to be told, you know, like one of the hashtags was, you know, I know a man who killed a woman in a BDSM situation. Now, fascinating story. And I wish I could go into all the details, but uh, it was originally going to be in the book. And I, I realized when I was writing it, I'm, I, when I was uh, editing the book, I'm like, you know what? That's not my story to tell. It's still a juicy tidbit that I can put out there on social media, but it's ultimately not my story. So I came up with these whole uh, things that, you know, got, hopefully got readers' attention. And so a lot, a lot of things, uh, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts and a lot of websites have my book. So it's been trying to get the word out every way I can. You know, it is, I, I sell autographed copies on my website, which if people are wanting to avoid Amazon, that's the best way to do it. Plus you get an autograph, but it's also available at Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores can order it. So they're easy to find. And you make the most if people get it through your website, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And uh, the website is just my name, kurgan-edwards-stout.com. And got a lot of information about my other books and photos of me and my kids and all kinds of stuff is on there. And of course, all that stuff will be part of the show notes. So when you first heard about me and Lisa told me about you, the goal was to get you into the bookstore that I was working at, of course, which now has closed. But have you talked to Hearthfire Books and Evergreen? Are they carrying your book? I have not talked to them. The, the way that the, the fees scale is structured on these, it's not, it doesn't make sense for a bookstore to actually put it on their shelves. But certainly people can order it through indie bookstores. But it just financially doesn't make a lot of sense for the, um, the bookseller to to invest in that. And I take a, a liability when people do put it on their shelves because, you know, people don't know this, but, you know, bookstores can order books and have them sit on their shelves and then they don't sell and then they return them and they may not be in the best of conditions. So sometimes you're taking a hit, but those, those books that went out and came back in less than perfect condition. So it's just not an ideal situation. Yeah, you're right. Most people don't know that. So what is, I want to say, because in the typical Revel Revel way, you know, what brought you to Evergreen? But you explain that so well in the book that I don't even need to. So <laughs> how about we end with what is life like in Evergreen? And life brought you here. Were you surprised? That, that I'm trying to think of things you didn't go into in the book. You know, what were you surprised yeah. about? And what happened along the way in, in that revelation of life in Colorado? Sure. Well, I think for us, um, leaving California, we were, I grew up in Southern California. I lived my entire life there and I could not wait to get out. It really got to a point where I was just not happy with the people, the congestion, the expense of living there. And we really were at a point where we wanted to simplify our life. And some of our fondest memories were being up in the mountains. And we decided we wanted to kind of replicate an experience that we had living in a cabin. But as a, you know, as a day-to-day we wanted to create our own idyllic world. And so we decided we wanted to be near a big city, but not in a big city. So we wanted to, we discovered Evergreen, which is 45 minutes from downtown Denver. And so just the idea that you can be, you know, in the middle of arts and culture and then come up to your cabin home and have elk and deer in the yard. That's really been soothing for us. But now Russ and I are contemplating where we go next because our our youngest, Marcus, will be graduating high school. And so we have a lot of unresolved questions. You know, we, we want 
you know, we're looking towards retirement. We're not quite there yet, but, you know, do we want to stay here? Do we want to downsize? Do we want to move somewhere else? Do we want to, our, our goal would be to travel as much as possible, especially, I think, throughout this election process, we've realized that there's a lot of factions within the U.S. that we don't really enjoy anymore. The fact that racism seems to be embraced by so many people, you know, we're, we're looking for a more peaceful life. And so what that looks like could take any number of turns. We don't really have anything set, but I will say, you know, that just living in the mountains has been so peaceful for me. I never get tired of seeing deer in our yard. You know, every time there's a deer, I run to the window and watch. And so there's something really peaceful about that. But we're also at a point where, you know, our, like I said, our oldest Mason is in California. Once Marcus graduates, who knows where he's going to end up. So, you know, as our kids get older and they develop families of their own, we want to be accessible. So what life looks like for us is a big unknown right now. And we're trying to just embrace that as a possibility as opposed to fearing it. Um, uh, think about all the different possibilities that our lives could could take as opposed to we don't know where we're going and we're you know afraid. So we're just trying to embrace that uh, more optimistic view. Well, obviously you only have till June-ish to figure that out. So yep. hopefully there's an opportunity between now and then when we actually get to meet in person. That would be great. That would be great. I love that. Well, I want to thank you for sending me your book, for thank you for your time. And I really hope it does well. It's so light and funny and... I still can't figure out how to explain it. What is your like 15 second elevator pitch? Um, you know, I think it's, it's just an entertaining look at a life well-led with everything from poignancy to sheer terror to, you know, hysterical incidents. It's, it's, it's got a, all of my life lessons packed in there and hopefully people will walk away going, okay, yes, you've had a challenging life sometimes, but wow, you made it through the other side and, you know, cheers. Right. And you made it entertaining and it's just the right amount of funny and the right amount of catty insider Hollywood stuff. I mean, it's just, it's really, it, it was really a pleasure. So thank you again. I really appreciate you being on and I hope to see you one day. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you all for listening and for being such good, faithful listeners, you revelers. Please, please, please tell everybody that you know about either your favorite episode or the podcast in general and share, share, share. I still do need a lot more subscribers. I need that number to go up and up so that different things can happen with those things called algorithms. So if you would help a sister out and hook me up, I'd really appreciate it. And of course, as always, betterhelp.com is my sponsor. Mental health didn't come up maybe as much as it has in the recent past here on Revel Revel. But you know what? If you listen to his story about caring for his dying partner and you think, man, he is in such a good mental place I wish that I had that strength of character to do that. Then I heartily recommend in 2021 that maybe you want to check out doing that emotional and mental work 
by seeing, talking to a therapist. Maybe on betterhelp.com, maybe someone in person, who knows. But please check out betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P.com, and see if that type of counseling is right for you. One of the benefits, one of the reasons I chose them as being my sponsor is because they are so flexible and you can change your therapist if things aren't working out. They work around your schedule and they even have financial assistance, which is super important. It's important to me and it's important in reality. So we all could use mental help and we all could use some financial support, right? So you will not be getting an author next week. You will be getting a, hmm, how do I define who's coming up next? A visionary. I will tell you more soon if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, but it's a visionary coming next time on Revel Revel.